if you could start your whole life all over again, what would you do differently? If you could erase an entire season of life, several months or several years of your life, which season would it be? If you could hit the reset button and redo a certain project at work or a house you shouldn't have bought or a relationship you should have never entered into, which one would it be? If you could go back and apologize to someone who was in authority over you, like a pastor, a police officer, a boss, a coach, or a parent, for something you did or said that now you regret, what is it that you would apologize for? If you could take back a conversation that you had through a text message or maybe a hasty email that you sent, what words would they be and why? And if you look back over your life, do you recall any warnings people gave you that you wish you would have listened to and obeyed? Everyone has a past. Everyone has a history. Everyone in this room has made decisions in their lives that they cannot redo or undo. As much as we may want to, we can't rewind the tape. We can't unscramble the egg. And for that matter, we all have regrets of decisions that we've made with our lives that have lingering effects and undesirable consequences that we have to face even to today. But if you're a Christian, we know that our past no longer defines us, at least in God's eyes. We know that our past is not where we should spend the bulk of our time or be most preoccupied with in our thoughts. We know this because something else happened in the past, both in human history and in a moment of time in our own lives that provided the perfect solution for our greatest problem. Our past. Is it something you're proud of? Or is it something you wish you could forget? Though we can't go back in time and change anything about our past, dear Christian, we have hope today. We have hope tomorrow. And we have hope eternally because of who our God is and what he is like who he was, who he is, and who he will always be for us through Jesus Christ, his son, but our savior. You see, our God is good and just and righteous, and he will punish all sin, and that includes all unforgiven sinners on the day of judgment. No one will escape their accountability before a holy God who gave them life. A holy God who requires perfection. A holy God who possesses all authority over the universe. A holy God who calls all people to repent of their sin before it's too late. But friend, our God is good not only in his justice and in his righteousness, but he is also good in his kindness to us, in his mercy towards mankind, his willingness, think about it, 
His willingness to forgive wretched sinners like you and I, though we don't deserve it. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2 verse 4, it's a good one to remember, that it's the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience with us that is meant to lead us to repentance. You see, it's the riches of God's kindness. It's the riches of his mercy extending as far and as long as his own existence. The psalmist in Psalm 136 verse 1 declares, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Well, friends, what does it mean that God is good? When we hear this stuff on the radio and on magnets, or we say it to make ourselves feel better about our day when it's not going well, God is good. What does that even mean? Author Mark Jones helps us here. He says, quote, his essence is good. That means his being. So that he cannot do anything that is not good. Perfect goodness belongs to God alone. Brothers and sisters, that means that our past, our present, and our future is in the hands of a perfectly good God. So to think about more of God's goodness and how it intersects with our past life, our present life, and our future, let's turn now to God's Word together. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. If you're using the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 580, Titus chapter 3. Over the past three weeks, we've been studying in this New Testament letter of Titus. So to review, in case you haven't been with us, in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, we learned about how our speaking and saving God uses chosen servants to carry out his redemptive mission throughout the world. The mission of saving sinners by his grace through the preaching of the gospel and using men like the Apostle Paul and his delegate and disciple Titus to see churches just like this one planted throughout the world. We've been studying in this letter in particular of churches that were planted on the Mediterranean island of Crete. Then in chapter 1, verses 5 to 16, we learn that these churches, they needed direction. They needed some organization if they were going to move forward in a spiritually healthy place. Uh, These churches were facing what many churches face today, threats of division and chaos because of false teachers and their followers were sowing seeds of division and seeds of deception among the flocks. And so Paul instructed Titus to find some men, some godly men, who are qualified according to the New Testament to be leaders in God's house or God's church. These men were called elders, overseers, and pastors, whose qualifications and their duties are kind of laid out for us in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Once Titus found these men, these faithful men, and got them in leadership places in the church, then Titus had to confront these unruly opponents. And then after he confronts them, Titus was to teach the believers 
how to love and obey sound doctrine. Well, then in Titus 2, verses 1 to 15, we see this fleshed out. This is where we were last week, where we see this multi-generational discipleship emphasis, where the people of God live together and love one another like a family. A family where older men and older women in the faith pour out their lives for those who are younger in the faith, or maybe even just younger in life, in order to see them grow up spiritually, to mature, and to see the gospel go to the next generation. Paul then exhorted bond servants how to commend the gospel witness to their masters. And then Paul reminded Titus that the grace of God through Jesus rescues our selfish ambitions and redeems them for good works that actually bring God glory. In other words, what we've been learning so far in Titus is that we are motivated to live godly lives in response to God's grace in our lives. As we all face temptation, we are called to renounce worldliness and ungodliness and our zeal for God that God gives us then inspires us towards good works that bring God glory. Then we left off in Titus 2 verse 15, if you want to look down with me where Paul, as a good mentor would do, reminds Titus to stand firm. Hold your ground, young man. You've got a hard task, but I've given you this task to fulfill with God's favor upon you. He said to Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Well, this morning, we turn now to Titus chapter 3. As Paul begins to land the plane with the final marching orders for Titus's ministry mission on the island of Crete. So in verses 1 to 11, we'll see Paul then exhort Titus how to tie up some loose ends. He's given him all these things to do, but he's going to make sure Titus finishes the drill. But what we're going to find out, though, is Paul doesn't really instruct Titus to do anything new on these final marching orders. Really, the last two chapters have set up what he's just going to echo again as he teaches sound doctrine to to live godly lives, the gospel and our salvation, and the importance of peace and order in God's church, the local churches on the island of Crete. And Paul does this in this section by first reminding them reminding them of their witness in the community, of the God who saved them, and what they must be focused on moving forward in their gospel mission. Please follow with me as I read Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, 
and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have three points that will guide us in our sermon passage this morning. Number one, remember your Christian witness in the community. Remember your Christian witness in the community. Number two, don't forget the kindness and mercy of God in saving you. Don't forget the kindness and mercy of God in saving you. And number three, give attention to good works and warn those who divide God's church. Give attention to good works and warn those who divide God's church. Let's look at that first point. Remember your Christian witness in the community. Uh, Paul begins this new and final portion of Titus's mission on the island of Crete with the emphasis on reminding them. Friends, we all need reminders, don't we? See, you needed to be reminded of that. Uh, throughout the week, how many times have you had something repeated to you by your spouse, a boss, a friend, maybe even the driver behind you because you haven't gone yet? Well, in verse 1, this is exactly what Paul does to Titus. Titus, remind them. It simply means bring to their attention something they already know. You ever heard that phrase? You're preaching to the choir, pastor. Well, that's probably what's going on here on the island of Crete. These Cretan Christians needed to hear again what they already believed. They needed something repeated to them that they had already heard. They needed to hear something that was so basic and simple to grasp, but evidently they were becoming forgetful of or potentially neglectful of in some way. So what is Titus to remind them about? Well, look at verses 1 and 2. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, Paul basically gives two very clear exhortations to us. The first, honor authority by humbling yourself in obedience under their authority. 
And love your neighbor by taming the tongue and being a blessing to them. So we see right there in verse 1 that believers should see authority first and foremost as an integral part of God's creation mandate. His good and wise order. Believers should see authority in and of itself not as a curse to disdain or a structure to reject, but believers should see authority as a gift to be revered and a gift to be stewarded well. I mean, think back with me to the very beginning of the Bible, to the very beginning of creation. No sin, no fall. Perfect paradise with God and man. What were the main two instructions God gave the first man and first woman to populate the whole earth? Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, God said to mankind, make babies, wife and husband, make babies in order to fill the earth with more of my image. And secondly, bring chaos into order by exercising dominion and ruling over God's creation as God's vice regents or his ruling representatives. Friends, that means to be a man, to be a woman who is created in God's image in part is to display something of God's wise, orderly, and benevolent care over creation. Let me say that again. To be a man, to be a woman created in God's image, in part is to display something of what God's wise and orderly and benevolent care over creation is like. Friends, authority is a gift from God. It's not something God said was a plan B, C, or D. It was plan A from the very beginning. Authority is something God entrusts to mankind. It's a derived authority. It's given to us from above. Friends, that means that any form of authority you might possess today ultimately didn't start with you. It didn't start with me. It was sovereignly given to you by God. And friends, that also means submitting under authority is one of the most basic ways we learn how to follow Jesus. For example, before Jesus gives the apostles and the church the great commission in Matthew 28, which was to make disciples of all nations, right? What did Jesus say about himself before he gave them those marching orders? Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means when you and I become a Christian, we all learn in the Discipleship School 101 class that in following Jesus, we first learn how to bow to Jesus. King Jesus has all authority over your life. Not you, not your mama, not your daddy, not what 
Baptist heritage you come from, not what political affiliation you are with. King Jesus rules your life. Friends, if you're a Christian, you've already waved the white flag of surrender and put on the righteousness of Jesus. And Jesus is Lord of your life. He possesses the highest form of authority in your life and in my life. So what does that mean? Whatever Jesus wants accomplished in our lives, we submit. Wherever God leads you in your life, we submit. Whatever cost is required of us to make his name known to the nations or to your neighbors, we submit because all authority in heaven on earth has been given to King Jesus. And that means ultimately every authority that exists is subservient to King Jesus. And no authority can even exist unless God grants that authority to happen. Read Romans chapter 13 this week to learn more about that. Friends, don't you remember Jesus' response to Pontius Pilate as Jesus is awaiting his final hours on the earth when he's been unjustly betrayed, unjustly charged, called a blasphemer and a demon? Do you remember what Pontius Pilate said to Jesus and what Jesus said back to Pilate? Pilate thought he had the upper hand on Jesus. John 19, verses 10 and 11. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. But friends, we also don't need to deny the reality that unlike Jesus, human authority can be abused. It can be misused to harm those under their authority. Sadly, we've either witnessed firsthand in our own lives or heard stories of parents being abusive to their children. A husband being abusive to his wife a wife being abusive to her husband, a pastor brainwashing his congregants in order to get his own way. Friends, anytime someone in authority uses that authority to dehumanize people under their authority, it is sin. It is wicked. It is wrong. Friends, it's demonic in nature. At the very least, it's a grotesque distortion of what our Heavenly Father is like to us. And at the very worst, it's a cunning and crafty scheme of the devil to deceive people into thinking that all authority is bad and then all authority should then be rejected. Friends, it has always been in the devil's playbook to convince people to distrust God and distrust the authority God has placed over our lives. Think back to the temptation in the garden. 
What was the temptation from the serpent to Eve? The serpent put doubts into Eve's mind about God's character, about God's word. But friends, that's an assault on God's authority in our lives. His authority over what God deemed was good and right for Adam and Eve to enjoy in a perfect paradise was assaulted by that cunning serpent. So friends, we should all acknowledge that sin and Satan in this fallen world can cause those in authority to abuse that authority or even neglect that authority. And sin and Satan can cause others under authority to revolt against authority with hatred and suspicion. You see, the creation mandate in Genesis 1 eventually encountered the fall of Genesis 3 when man's rebellion became most clear by disobeying and distrusting God's authority. Man's rebellion against a perfectly good father. A distrust and an anarchist attitude now pervades our hearts more than we even realize. It's the professing Christian who won't join a local church because they distrust spiritual authority. It's the woman who distrusts men because her father ruined that example of what a man should love like and lead like. It's the man who won't open up about his pain and hurt to others because he's been lied to by those in authority over him. But beloved, let's be abundantly clear. Whether it's a dictatorship, a president, a governor, a board of elders, a pastor, a parent, a husband, or some other sphere of authority. No authority is perfect and no authority should be obeyed over God's authority. Or as we just read from Matthew 28, King Jesus' authority. So when should we disobey authority? When is disobedience to authority the right thing to do? The late R.C. Sproul once said, we are always and everywhere to obey the authorities over us. Boss, police, governor, whatever that authority may be. Unless that authority commands us to do something that God forbids or forbids us from doing something that God commands. Sometimes we are to disobey. If the civil magistrate calls us to sin, we must say no. Now, you might be interested to think more about this in your own time. Maybe you can read about the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1, or Daniel's example in the first half of Daniel, or the apostles in Acts chapter 5, when they were being threatened to stop preaching in Jesus' name. And then they boldly declared in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. As U.S. citizens, we are living in a day and a time where our country is sharply divided over issues regarding women's rights, race, gender identity, politics, foreign policy, freedom of religion, and more recently, how to respond to the COVID-19 spread around the country. As pastors and as Christians, we must think well about what is clearly sin according to the scriptures and then what is left up to a Christian's conscience before God to be obeyed. You might consider reading Romans 14 this afternoon and think more about that, of how that could apply to you. 
But brothers and sisters, I front-loaded a whole biblical theology on the goodness of authority and the abuse thereof. I say all those qualifications in light of the clear, plain teaching of Titus 3. Believers should ordinarily submit their lives in obedience to those in authority over them. Believers should ordinarily submit their lives in obedience to those in authority over them. To the classroom, to the workplace, from the home, to the church. A Christian, one who's been regenerated, whose will has been bent, one's heart who has been bowed to Jesus is this. I'm going to fear God first. I'm going to love my neighbor second. And I'm going to do it to the extent that I do not sin against God and I do not sin against my neighbor. Fear God first, love your neighbor second, and I'm going to keep doing so until I sin against God or sin against my neighbor. More simply put, the heart and call of submission is essential to obeying the Great Commission. The heart and call of submission is essential to obeying the Great Commission. Friends, that's what the whole book of Titus has been about. Here's the truth. Here's how you should live. Here's where you're off. Here's where you repent. Here's who God is. Here's what we deserve. Here's what he's done for us in Christ. Therefore, live it out. It's a much smaller version of Romans, which is a kind thing for the Lord to do for us. You see, friends, from the very beginning of Titus 1.1 to the very end, we are learning that our heart and our life individually should be ultimately about obeying King Jesus. And our hearts and lives as a local church should be focused on obeying King Jesus. We are servants of the king. We're not slaves of a bad master. We are slaves. We are doulos. We are bondservants. We are bound to a perfectly good master. And friends, when Christ's servants trust their good master, the gospel goes forward through their mouths, through their lives, as an onlooking world steps back and goes, who is in them? What are they living for? They're living for a kingdom that is not of this world. Friends, that, that's what should be our prayer here at CCBC. We should be a people made up of servants of the Lord Jesus who want to see Christ's kingdom come and Christ will be done. Oh, may that be our prayer. Friends, this is what happens when we submit to the authorities under us even in how we use our words towards those over us and to those we live around. Look at verse 2. He says, to speak evil of no one. It literally means don't slander anyone. Don't propagate a defamation of character towards someone. Uh, to avoid quarreling. It means to avoid being an argumentative or a divisive person. Be known by your peacekeeping rather than your ability to fight against others. 
He says to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. This just speaks of the humble and gentle disposition that we see perfectly embodied in Christ. And as Christ teaches us to follow him, we become lowly and gentle, just like him. Brothers and sisters, what has your Christian witness looked like this past week? What has your Christian witness looked like this past week? Were the people who were around you more convinced of your love for King Jesus? Or were they turned off and confused because of the lack of fruit they see in your life? When people around you, by what you talked about, what got you angry, what got you sad, what got you excited, did people walk away going, wow, that is someone who loves King Jesus. That's someone who's concerned about Jesus' kingdom. That's someone who's concerned about Jesus' church. Or did they look back and go, Man, their profession of faith doesn't really match how they live and how they talk. Kids, ask your mom and dad, have I been a joy and pleasure for you in my obedience this week? Husbands, ask your wives, have I been a joy and pleasure to follow as the head of the home this week? To those who have an employer you interact with on a weekly basis, or if you have employees working under you, ask them if your presence in this company or in this job has made life more enjoyable and even easier because of you being there, or has it become unpleasant, like a painful thorn in their side? And to all of us, look back over your text messages, your emails, your social media posts over the last month, Ask yourself, has my speech been largely used to speak evil of others? Slander? Malice? Or has it been used to bless, to disciple, and to encourage others? Maybe you're here this morning and you're having a difficult time living with someone that you're under authority. Or... You are having a difficult time at work working under someone in that authority. I would encourage you to pray for them. When you're tempted to speak ill of them, stop. Pray. Don't complain about people in authority you don't like if you're not on your knees interceding for them. That's called hypocrisy. You don't care about them if you don't pray for them. Pray for your president regardless if you agree with him or not. Pray for the local police. Pray for lawmakers and judges. Pray for your boss. Pray for your parents. And pray for your pastors and elders. Paul gives us the reason in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Well, Paul then builds upon this high calling of our Christian witness to be humble, to be gentle, to be submissive to the authorities God places on our life. And he does this by reminding the Cretans 
of who they used to be before they knew Jesus and what God has done in them since they've come to know Jesus. Look at verses 3 to 7 with me now. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Which leads to point number two, don't forget the kindness and mercy of God in saving you. Earlier, I asked us a variety of questions. The leadoff question was, of course, if you could start your whole life all over again, what would you do differently? Friends, all of us have a past. You fill in the blank for yourself today. All of us have a checkered track record with bleak spots that bring shame and regret to our lives. To the Cretans, Paul basically just uses terms to describe the types of sinful desires, sinful decisions, and sinful relationships that characterize all of fallen humanity before we become Christians. And guess who that includes? Us. He says in verse 3, for we ourselves. Friends, this morning, put your name there. I already did it. I've had to spend 20 hours on this text. My heart's bleeding on, I know how dark my sin is. For we ourselves, Paul, Titus, the Cretans, and Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In other words, contrary to very popular Hallmark birthday cards, no one is born an angel. Now, some of y'all need to take those cards back to Walgreens or Hallmark. That's not what the Bible teaches. Nobody is born an angel, and if they were, it's a really bad angel. No one is born with the default setting of being good in God's sight. No one is born loving God and loving neighbor as we were created to. In fact, by nature, we are haters of God. And did you read Titus 3.3? We're haters of one another. Did you hear that? By nature, we hate God. And by nature, we hate one another. This sick and deadly cancerous sin condition inside each one of us is evident as early as childhood, and it stretches all the way to the end, to the latter years of our adult lives. I mean, think for a minute. Children fighting over a small, cheap, plastic toy. Why do you think they do that? Their hearts hate one another. All the way to marriages being ripped apart by divorce. Prisoners killing one another in prison, showing that. 
Our hatred can be temporarily quarantined with steel bars, but it can never be totally eradicated by human means. You can separate angry and selfish kids in different rooms. You can separate a spiteful husband and wife through divorce. You can separate prisoners into highly secure compounds. But friends, no human means can save or cleanse the sinfulness of the human heart. No human means. No education, no upbringing, no country, no church for that matter. Friends, if you're not a Christian here today, of all places, we are glad you're here, but we have nothing to offer you of any eternal significance unless you first come to grips with how ugly your sin is before a holy God. Listen, that's what all of our testimonies are. If you've walked into this building with your chest puffed out because you don't think you're as sinful as the next person, you're deceived. Some people's sin is more outward and open, and some people's hatred boils for a lifetime. All of it is evil in God's eyes. And friends, This isn't a pastor on a hobby horse about sin. This is the testimony of Scripture. This is the obituary of what spiritually dead sinners look like before God. Look at verse 3 again. We're foolish. We lack God's wisdom, which means we are born lacking a right fear of God. In fact, we think much more about ourselves than we do about the God of Scripture. We're disobedient and led astray, which means we are the spiritually blind leading the spiritually blind. We're slaves to various passions and pleasures. It reveals our evil and perverted desires that flows through our veins. Friends, apart from God's grace, we're known by, we're characterized by our sinful addictions and impulsive self-centered obsessions rather than the fruits of self-control in our pursuit of holiness. Paul goes on to say we were passing our days in malice and envy. Again, he's saying by nature we live in suspicion towards other people. We distrust one another. Or we just show hatred to people who challenge us. People who speak the light of God's word into our darkness and we don't like it. Because John tells us that they hated the light because they love the darkness. Friends, that's exactly why we have so much mess in spheres of authority and those under authority is because we ain't right. And this ain't ever going to get right until this gets right. But Paul doesn't keep the focus stuck on their past. The past that once defined them in very distasteful ways has been changed. He reminds them not just of their past, but of the kindness and mercy of God who saved them from themselves. He reminds them of the God who powerfully has worked in them a work of grace that leads to godliness. This is a powerful work that no human being can do to themselves. Friends, only God and God alone can do this work 
in a person's heart. He explains, look out there in verse 4, that it was Jesus leaving heaven, coming to earth, that has revealed to us the goodness and loving kindness of God. He says in verse 5 that we have been saved, we have been delivered, we have been rescued, not because we were good enough for God, not by climbing the legalistic ladder to heaven, not by showing God our best attempts to look beautiful in his sight and keep our noses clean. No, he says very clearly who saved us, why he saved us, how he saved us, and to what end he saved us. So who has saved spiritually dead, God-hating, people-hating sinners like you and me? Look at verse 4. God, our Savior, appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Verse 6. Brothers and sisters, the Son of the living God came down to earth to save a wretch like us. That's what our brother Brad read earlier from John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Well, why did he save us? Have you ever asked that? Why did God save you? Why did the eternal God, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, take time out of his very busy schedule to save a rebel like you? He saved us, verse 5, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Friends, he saves us because he delights in showing his goodness and mercy to sinners. God delights in showing off how good he is, especially when you and I realize how bad we are, when you can't lift your head because you committed the same sin again. When you're going to bed at night being tortured by thoughts of your past, it's when you're at your lowest, when you're at your darkest, when you're at your most sense of shame and guilt, that's when the goodness of God is sweet to you. Taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. He'll never be good to you until you realize how bad you are. But once you realize your darkness God, our Savior, appeared, and he came in the person of Jesus Christ, and he saved us. He rescued us. He delivered us. He came down to the bottom of the ocean of our sin, and he woke us up, brought us through the waters, threw us in the boat, and saying, I'm bringing you home. That is salvation. So much for a walk down the aisle. So much for just a lousy, mindless sinner's prayer. So much we got to seal the deal three minutes after the service. This is God working. That's why we pray for the most rebellious sinner to be born again, because God can do it. Your child that you're grieved over, will they ever come to know Jesus? He is able. 
Your neighbor who scoffs at you because of Jesus, he is able. Even a lost, unregenerate church member that won't reconcile with you, he is able. He is in the business of cutting off the handcuffs of our sin and freeing us. Going from prisoners to sin to free servants of Jesus. Isn't that good news? Y'all can clap. You can do some amen. Mark's doing some clapping. Guys, what, what end did he save us? How did he save us? To what end did he save us? Well, verse 5 says it's by the washing, the bathing, the cleansing power of regeneration. It means to be born again. The renewal, the renovating work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God has been poured out, literally like a waterfall, overflowing on our filth through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Friends, the Father sent the Son to die in our place. Then the Father raised him from the dead, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Father said, I'm sending the Spirit who is coming through the Son, and he's going to be poured out on a people that I've chosen before the foundation of the earth, and I'm going to give them new life. We're going to make them one, even as we are one. I'm going to transform them. Friends, that's, that's what happens in salvation. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are on a triune salvation mission, and it's a mission they will not fail. They will accomplish. They will fulfill the plan of salvation from eternity past, and it will be on display one day when we're seated around that marriage supper of the Lamb, singing, worthy is the Lamb, the one who belongs all power, honor, glory, and blessing to him who is seated on the throne. Glory, hallelujah. And any crowns we receive from King Jesus, we put back at his feet and worship him. Oh, friends, this is a glorious God. This is a glorious Savior. Verse 7, why and to what end and how? Well, we are justified by his grace that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Friends, he saved us by his unmerited favor so that we would stand righteous in his sight. And friends, he gave us, he saved us to give us hope, not just from our ugly past, not just from the perplexing present, but he saved us for the future. He says we've been saved that we might become heirs according to the hope, the confident expectation of eternal life, life without end. But friends, let's get real. You leave these doors, life's going to get really hard. You believe in King Jesus, you believe in and marvel at this salvation, doesn't mean life gets easier. Remember, fallen man hates one another and hates God, and we still have that residual nasty flesh in our own lives. Betrayed by friends, hated by enemies, lied to by leaders, deceived by church members, abused and misled by governmental authorities. This is the scary world we still live in. We're not home yet. But life also can be hard because if we're left to ourselves, we would never seek God. 
Instead of abiding in Christ, we would live in sin. Instead of abiding in Christ, we would swim in our pornography and drugs and drunkenness and all sorts of debauchery and self-harm. We would scoff with our words. We would rebel against all forms of authority. We would view our lives as one gigantic cesspool of man devouring man to get what he wants, no matter what it takes. But brothers and sisters, no matter what hardship or disappointment death or loss or persecution you and I ever have to bear up, God has already been kind to us. He doesn't owe us anything. He's already given us the best gift heaven could ever send. If you are in Christ, you and I have already been treated far better than our sins deserve. You're a Christian this morning. You and I have spiritual life inside of us because God mercifully sought us. God sought us when we weren't seeking him. He regenerated our dead hearts. He woke us up from the dead so that we can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Uh, Paul is in essence saying to Titus, to the Cretan Christians, and to us today at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, as you pass through this life, whatever you do. Do not forget the kindness and mercy of God in saving you. John Piper exhorts us to the same end. He says, if you are born again, if you are awakened from spiritual death and given eyes to see and ears to hear and a spiritual sense to taste that Jesus is supremely satisfying and a heart to trust him, It is owing to the kindness of God. God loves to lavish kindness on us. The bigger your conception of God, the more amazing this is. God is the creator of the universe. He holds the galaxies in being. He governs everything that happens in the world, down to the fall of a bird, to the number of hairs on your head. He is infinitely strong and wise and holy and just. And amazingly, he is kind. And because of this kindness, we were born again. Let your very existence as a Christian tell you every hour of every day, God is kind to you. And if you don't know this kind and merciful God today, you can. God sent his son to die in our place, bearing the penalty our sins deserve. God raised him from the dead to show us a picture of what one day can happen in your heart and your eternal state if you turn from your sin and trust in him. The greatest decision you could ever make with your life is submit to King Jesus by faith and don't look back. Amen. As an evangelism tip, for those of you who like to spar with people and share the good news and people like to combat you a little, about defending the Christian faith. There's a few different angles you can take with someone about defending the faith. One of those you can use is pointing to the evidence of a sinner's changed life, someone who's been born again. Those who are truly believers show that a supernatural birth took place 2,000 plus years ago, the virgin birth of the Son of God who became a man. You see, the incarnation the conception and birth of Jesus is the basis 
for our rebirth. We can be born again because the Spirit of God enabled a virgin to carry the Son of God in her womb. Friends, that is one of the apologetics for why a church should take regenerate church membership serious. Friends, you can pass out all your apologetic books. You can read all the different arguments to show people their illogical fallacies for not believing a Christian worldview. But at the end of the day, you know what will cause a sinner to fall on their face when they enter this building? People that fill this room who really love Jesus. Their hearts have been changed. They're filled with the Spirit. And something powerful happens because God shows them that he is really in this place. Well, the third thing Paul does for Titus, which is our last point, he shows all the motivation we'll ever need to see Christ's church built up, but also to protect the church from being destroyed. Number three, give attention to good works and warn those who divide God's church. Look at verse eight. He's saying this, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Friends, it's really clear in Titus 3. There's no really hard thing to understand here. Good works don't save us. That's what verse 5 just said. We are not saved by our works and righteousness. But good works may reveal that we are saved by God's grace. James tells us that faith without works is dead. James chapter 2. Ephesians 2.10 reminds us that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is a good work? We throw around those terms all the time. Well, it's any act of obedience to God that is done out of the overflow of love for God and love for neighbor. That neighbor could be a stranger, could be an enemy, could be a family member, could be a fellow church member. It's showing hospitality to others to facilitate Christian fellowship. It's evangelizing the lost. It's discipling a younger believer. It's feeding the poor and caring for widows and orphans. It's sacrificing for your kids. It's providing for your family. It's cleaning toilets at the church. It's organizing the church finances. It's serving the Lord's Supper. It's serving in child care. Can I get an amen? All right. It's being a good witness in the workplace. It's calling a friend to encourage them. It's counseling a bewildered soul. It's praying for your enemy and blessing them. It's overlooking an offense. It's showing kindness and patience to those who are difficult to love. Friends, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of ways that we do good works to show off how good God has been to us. And brothers and sisters, we all become spiritually dull at some point or another. Your pastor struggles with spiritual dullness more than you probably should know. That's why I send up my SOS alerts. Brothers, pray for me. I can't even focus today studying the Bible. I need your help. All the way up till I get to this pulpit, I'm praying under my breath, God, help me. God, help me. Speak. Speak. My heart is dull. Perhaps we're lazy. Perhaps we're selfish. How? Can we live in this, I know this is true, but I'm just not motivated at times. 
Friends, that's why we should gather with the saints every week. We should gather with the saints on the Lord's Day because it reignites the engines in our souls. It's coming together to sing God's praises. It's coming together to offer confession of sin and petitions and prayer to God. It's talking about what we're learning in the sermons, in the Bible studies, or in the equipping classes. It's sharing our burdens and sorrows. It's praying together. It's sharing how God has answered prayer in our lives and how he's turned your marriage around. It's sharing evangelistic opportunities God gave you this week. It's talking about ways you're serving your neighbors and telling them about Jesus. It's sharing how God has used you as a source of encouragement and peace in your job at work. Friends, the writer of Hebrews clearly tells us, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and what? Good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, the local church is a place full of sinners saved by God's grace who are good work junkies. That's what we're about, man. We know not a lick of anything we do will ever make us right with God, but we know that God is so good, how can we not commit to acts of service and love to one another? We are good work junkies. Get a bunch of good work junkies together who are excited about God's goodness, and this place will blow its top off with ways that we are showing the love of Christ to others. But brothers and sisters, not to be a Debbie Downer, I'm just following where Paul's going. Truth is, not everyone in the local church has the same heart and mind as the writer of Hebrews does. Sometimes there are people who appear to be like-minded at first in your church, but their motives become obvious over the course of time. Their motives and agenda are not concerned about peace and order in God's church. Instead, their selfish ambition and deceived hearts are dividing God's church rather than building it up. Look at verses 9 to 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I was a kid growing up, one of my favorite games in PE was war ball. Anybody remember the 90s war ball? I think that's just like an intense way of saying dodgeball. Just sounds a little more gory. Sorry, getting excited about it. It was a blast. Line up a group of rubber balls in the middle. The whistle blows. And as each team storms the center line to grab that rubber ball and throw it at your opponent. Sometimes you had that one kid who got angry. And that one kid who wanted to show off to all his buddies. And so he runs, grabs a ball, runs over across the line, and storms after the other team. Of course, in doing this, he breaks the rules, breaks the kid's nose, 
and ruins the game for everybody. Friends, sometimes in the life of the church, there are members in that church who cross the line in God's house. For Titus on the island of Crete, there were false teachers that we learned about and their followers back in Titus chapter 1. Do you remember what they were called? Insubordinate. That means they don't obey authority. Empty talkers. They use their speech to cut down and slander and divide. And they're deceivers. They don't know the truth and they can't tell the truth to others because they don't know it themselves. They majored on theological minors. They were more concerned about ego-driven debates and getting their way rather than humbly encouraging the saints. They were combative and disruptive by nature. They were distractive in the Lord's Day gatherings, and they lived reckless and godless lives. You remember what Paul told Titus to do in Titus 1.13? They needed to be rebuked. They needed to be silenced. And here in Titus chapter 3, they needed to even be removed if they weren't repentant. You'll notice here how the church is respond, how to respond to divisive people and their membership. They are to be marked out. Put a name with the face, put a face with the name, and they are to be warned. He mentions a process of warning right there in verse 10. Did you see that? Once and then twice. This is really just the same process that Jesus talks about in Matthew 18 that Brad read earlier for us in the service. This is the difficult but loving process the Bible calls church discipline. When a professing believer who is a member of the church is living in unrepentant sin, that means they're loving their rebellion more than they're loving Jesus. They are to be warned and rebuked, Paul says. In this case, these false converts were sowing and spreading division through false teaching and contentious behavior. They're known as controversial. They want to win. They want to arm wrestle everyone their point. They're not there to win the brother. They're there to destroy the brother. After a series of conversations and maybe even perhaps documenting the charges that are being brought to this person, if this person continues in their sin, they are to be excommunicated, disfellowshipped, removed from their number. Titus even says, have nothing more to do with them. Friends, I realize that many of us have never been a part of a local church that actually practiced church discipline in this way. Whether the pastor was fearful or the church had no idea who the members even were, or the bulk of the members weren't even regenerate themselves, and rank sin pervaded the congregation. Either way, the Bible is clear on how to do this. The Bible is clear that the local church has been authorized by King Jesus to oversee one another's profession of faith and hold one another accountable to our profession of faith when our faith and our lack of fruit is on display. When a local church sees that love and authority are not opposed to each other, 
but we display something of what God is like when we exercise loving authority over one another's lives in the church. When a local church sees that this is God's way of loving an unrepentant sinner, it's viewed as an act of mercy and not harsh. Brothers and sisters, to warn a professing believer of the dangers of sin and eternal hell is one of the most loving things you could ever do for another person's soul. To warn a professing believer of unrepentant sin, and in this case, dividing Christ's church, literally taking sides with people to rally against others in the local church. To warn that person is an act of love. It's an act of mercy. Because if they don't repent, there is coming a day of judgment that will be far greater than excommunication from a local church. The goal of church discipline is not retribution. The goal of church discipline is repentance and restoration. Friends, do you know someone today that you should lovingly pursue and warn because they're living in sin? Is there someone that you think is a Christian, but from the fruit you see or the fruit you don't see, they've kind of walked off the narrow way and they're drifting? Do you know someone in Christ's church who's being divisive and insubordinate and empty talkers? The most loving thing you can do is warn them in love that they might repent. You see, friends, all of us need this. None of us are without sin. We need encouragement every week because we get dull. And we need to be warned and reproved and instructed so that we don't become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need to be reminded of this weekly because we have a Christian witness to uphold in the community. And friends, if we've come to know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our sinful past has been forgiven by God. Our present is being sustained by God's grace to make us more like Jesus. And our future is secure knowing that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. John Newton once said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray. Father, you have been so kind to us. You have been rich in mercy. You have been good to us. You have changed and regenerated our hearts so that we might love and serve King Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would cause our church to be a church full of sinners saved by grace who are good work junkies. That we're constantly inspiring and stirring up one another to love and good deeds. Lord, I also pray that we would be a church that when we see one another go astray, 
or when we become insubordinate to those in authority over us at work or in the home or in church. Or that we would have the love and gentleness but courage to warn one another so that we would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Lord, you tell us in your word that none of us should think we are ever above any sin, but rather we should take heed lest we fall. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that keeps the main thing the main thing, that we would be a church full of regenerate, repentant Christ followers, so much so that when an unbeliever walks in our gatherings, they will declare that you are really among us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.